0: Hello, uh, I'm Karen Colburn, I'm the manager for the uh, Digital Library Initiative at Media Library and Archives at WGBH Television. Um, So today we've seen a lot of presentations referencing broadcasting programmes from WGBH, and I'd like to talk about our archive and how we're opening up access to the 50-plus-year history of programming at WGBH. Open Vault Embodies an evolving framework for preservation of and access to materials from the WGBH archive that would have generally been unavailable for educational use. While not completely open content yet, in that materials are not downloadable for manipulation within the classroom, OpenVault presents an emerging set of tools to enable educators to interact with rich media materials. OpenVault builds upon both lessons learned from the past. And the emerging technologies that allow us to present information in new and exciting ways. Thanks to funding from the National Endowment of the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services, WGBH Media Library and Archives had created three standalone websites for particular <coughs> titles from their collection: new television workshop based on experimental video art. Say brother, a local series on, African, on the African American community in Boston, and the Ten O'clock News, uh, the local nightly news station, that was on air from 1976 to 1991. Resource tools and functionality developed in sophistications between 1999, when New Television Workshop was launched, 2001, when Say Brother was launched. Through to 2003, with the 10 o'clock news, while each site presented a deep, uh, sorry. while each site presented, presented a deep finding aid, there was no ability to link the collections across search across the entire content, limiting their usefulness because they were separate silent collections. Open Vault amalgamates the information and resources from the previous collections, adds approximately 50 new assets from the WGBH archive, and features a greater range of functionality to enable educators to interact with the resources. It provides a framework for the future preservation of the WGBH archive, gradually opening up the rich media for educational use. Interviews from War and Peace in the Nuclear Age, Vietnam and Television History, Pressing the People, and five public domain assets to contextualise the interview material comprised the new new assets. We created digital files for all the raw material, as well as clips that would be displayed on the website. This was especially important for some of the 20-year-old War and Peace in the Nuclear Age tapes that were already showing signs of deterioration, resources gave us the opportunity to consider what functionality we wanted to incorporate into the new site. I'd like to share with you a quick tour of Open Vault to illustrate the choices we made. (coughs) The opening home page uh, offers a mosaic that gives you a glimpse into the treasures of the archive. As you scroll across each tile, it displays... It displays the title of the item in the top left corner. Click on any item and you'll be taken to that resource. Here we have the main description for the item, including series, programming, clip description. To the left of the video, we have the transcript. This shows you the section of the transcript relating directly to the streaming clip. Click on full transcript, and you'll be, fo- Sorry, again. And you'll be shown the full raw interview transcript uh, broken up into chapter headings. Click on any heading, and you'll be taken directly to that part of the interview. notes feature once you've signed in of course, um, allows users to create notes on a particular resource. Um, For now this is um, individual to the user on the website, it's not interactive note taking uh, more of that later Um, but we do see this as a way um, to make the site useful to educators as they create lesson plans and scholars as they carry out research. They're stored in your list And again, once you've signed in, which I shan't bother here, um, you can delete and update any of your notes in your list and reorder things in your list so that you can you can keep up to date with the uh, the research and the notes you're taking. So we made the colours on the on the website um, a mixture of, sort of very vibrant and quite light colours. So I apologise if some of you can't see the text on the. The, um, on the web page, I know some of it's quite light but here on the web page we, we have the ability to um, send a URL to somebody else and again we see this as a way to share information among educators and scholars and the public so they can be directed directly to a page that you're interested in, in showing them and you can put messages on that as well so you could always cut and paste your notes into the body of the email for a student to, uh, to use We also have um, people who like this also liked, and we wanted to have an ability to have both um, uh, functions that were uh, attractive to educators and scholars, but also um, a, lot of them, a lot of functions that would be um, interesting and fun to play about with the website. So we have people who like this also liked, which is... oops. which is based on Netflix or Amazon principle, where when you're on a page, you'll be shown items of similar interest. So for example, with President Carter, Salty in Afghanistan, we have um, the Nuclear Physicist, MGK, uh, Menon, uh, Paul Nietzsche and Helmut Schmidt pages that you can uh, click onto. As part of our mission to make content available to educators, Media Library and Archives does want to expand the use of materials on the website. As such, a proportion of the interviews are available on DVD at cost to educators, so they'll have the full resource for use in their learning environment. Our hope is to eventually have complete video streaming uh, on the site, uh, but as we know, bandwidth is always an issue, as are our rights considerations, and it is something that we're looking into for the future, and possibly internet too, uh, will help us to achieve some of the goals that we want to, to go forward with. So, while the ability to manipulate resources on the website is of crucial importance to user experience, The ability to search and browse a collection is often what marks a website out as a useful resource for scholars and educators. Within our budget and timeline, we wanted to create as many search and browse options as possible to offer offer differing differing types of users paths to exploring the assets on the website. We have a simple keyword search or an advanced customised search that can be limited by date, title, etc., Within the basic search, for example, mm-hmm. should I put in Savoy Café? Mm-hmm. I'll bring up a, an item with the vocalist Mia Arnett talking about um, Boston nightclubs in the 1950s. And I'll just play that for you. Video is played as progressive streaming. And this is only a minute long, so I won't take a
1: Too. And when I came here, Mass Ave was swinging, and the Savoy was right, up on Mass a little Ave. Little bit after that. See, and yeah. so that's a little before my time. Yeah. So when you told me yeah. that the Savoy was at West Newton and Columbus. That's right, that was that the was, beginning. Yeah, was I, was yeah, I, I hadn't quite gotten No, uh, You know what caused here. it to move? Right. At that time, the Coconut Grove fire happened, hmm. and there was um, something came down for the safety of the public. All um, nightclubs had to be closed pending an
2: investigation of an- exits. Mm-hmm. they had to close up mm-hmm. and the lease ran out in the meanwhile so instead of fixing up the exits they Relocate. That's how that happened, yeah. It's kind of an interesting human interest story.
1: It is, and actually yeah. it makes it good, because when you stop to say that uh, Savoy moved over on Mass Ave, where I yeah. had first, my first I think experience. it was there longer,
2: actually. You know, most people identify with the one that was on Mass Avenue. Yeah,
1: which I hmm. do, because yeah. when I came here, Eddie Levine's was going, Wally's right. Paradise. Right. In fact, Novella Taylor was working at yeah. Eddie Levine's when I came here. Right.
0: in various ways so we have a a very simple uh, alphabetically by people uh, or by series and the series listings are weighted by um, the video clips first uh, then programs and transcripts because we felt that the um, moving images are what people are really looking for more and more on websites so we weighted them specifically Um, We also have a browsing hierarchy which is based on Merlot. And for those of you who don't know Merlot, it's the Multimedia Educational Resources for Learning and Online Teaching. And we made our browsing hierarchy five levels deep, which means that um, uh, educators can be as broad or as specific in their browsing as they choose. So, for example, if we go into science and technology... We can, we can go down as far as, you know, we can go down into engineering and then from there browse down further. So rather than doing a general search, it gives people different paths to, to work through materials. We currently have over 1,300 assets on Open Vault, of which five, over 550 have streaming clips. The access we're creating to the WGBH archive materials for educational use is an ongoing, evolving process. In collaboration with UMass Boston and the CCN MTL here at Columbia, we do hope soon to have the opportunity to work with the film based series Vietnam and Television History, a mammoth preservation project in and of itself. We hope to expand on the architecture of the website. By incorporating functionalities such as interactive note-taking and social tagging, as well as CCN and MTL, using core materials to create learning environments, we see future collaboration with educational institutions as vital to the ongoing access to materials from the WGBH archive. Uh, just of note, uh, since we launched in January of this year. Um, We're already in the top five for all the um, search engines, which is nice for Open Vault. Um, Of course, WGBH Open Vault brings us up straight away. Um, And finally, I want to really thank the Institute of Museum and Library Services for funding Open Vault. It's important that we get this funding to really open up our archives on the web for educators.
2: Jane Johnson. I'm the Mike Project Manager at the Library of Congress. I am a librarian by training. I was a working cataloger for about 20 years at the UCLA Film and Television Archive, as was Andrea, um, uh, the Library of Congress Prints and Photographs Division, and also the L.A. County Museum of Art. Uh, I'm just curious, how many of you have been to the Mike site? That's pretty good. Those of you that haven't, it's mike.loc.gov. That's your destination when you get home. Um, Let me just start out here. (coughs) Talking about Mike as a tool for discovery. This is how most people, I think, perceive Mike generally. This is primarily what we do. We allow people to discover moving images. That's our union catalog, which is essentially just a database telling who's got what. And where, and this is something that this is kind of an additional layer of functionality that we have that other present hasn't been mentioned too much in the other presentations. That we want to link the images to the the repositories that hold them because we do have this additional layer of functionality, our core functionality actually of preservation. Then we have an archive directory, which leads you to discover organizations holding moving images, and then information about moving images and their preservation, and those are our information resources. The MIC mission is to immerse moving images in the education mainstream, recognizing that what society uses, it values, and what it values, it preserves. So you see we have an education mission and a preservation mission, and what we're providing is the tools to advance those missions. We also provide a platform for collaboration and a research and development test bed. We're a collaboration between the Association of Moving Image Archivists and the Library of Congress. This project grew out of the U.S. National Moving Image Preservation Plans, which I'll just mention briefly in a moment, and our initial development was funded by the National Science Foundation. We're part of the National Science Digital Library. This is the Mike home page. You can see here the Collections Explorer is where you search the union catalog. (coughs) And if you go to the advanced search, that was just the quick and dirty search, of course. Here you can limit by field within the record, metadata. And you can also limit your search by organization. So this gives you a lot more precision in your searches. The other thing that's interesting is that you can search by organization and sometimes you'll get a little better functionality than that way than if you actually walked into the door of one of these archives, taking the Library of Congress. I'll use my own institution as an example. It's actually a little bit difficult or clunky to go into the Library of Congress catalog and pull up only moving images, whereas with Mike, you can go straight in here. You can limit your search and pull up only moving images within our collection. And this is Archive Explorer. This is the archive directory and the uh, advanced search. So Mike really started out with these movie image preservation plans, which were authorized by national legislation in the U.S. The redefining film preservation came out in 1994, and then the television and video preservation followed three years later. These are really state-of-the-field reports that describe the crisis in film preservation, and they, they included a number of recommendations and what the Library of Congress did is it came to the Association of Moving Image Archivists and asked us to, and I'm wearing two hats here, I'm also on the AMIA Board of Directors. so And Andrea was a former president of AMIA. We have <laughs> it's my CV,
3: of, your good holy totally Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. We
2: have a number of AMIA members here, I'm happy to see. But Elsie came to AMIA and asked us to put together an implementation plan. And so what, what we did is we went out, well, we had a, a number of task forces were formed. And we did, the cataloging task forces um, was, gave us the seeds of Mike. We hired a, someone to do a feasibility study. That was Grace Agnew. And she not only did a feasibility study, she actually built the plan and built the archi- uh, developed the architecture for Mike. There are a number of components. Uh, there's first the union catalog, as I mentioned, the archive directory informational resources. All of this is available through a portal structure. A really cool tool that we have is a mapping utility or mapping wizard that allows you to actually take a local metadata schema. If you have your records in a database in FileMaker Pro or Access or even an Excel spreadsheet, you can then map those through this mapping wizard and uh, bring, your, bring your records into the Mike Union catalog. The cataloging utility is being developed right now at Rutgers University Libraries based on their workflow management system, and that will allow people to input people and organizations to input their records directly into the Mike Union catalog. I'll talk about that a little later. And then the service providers directory, which is being developed right now at Georgia Tech. And this is a parallel development to the archive directory, but it lists organizations and individuals who provide products and services for moving image collections. And this just shows you our portal structure. I don't know if you can read that print, but we've got a general users portal, an archivist portal, and a science educators portal. Now this is something that's unique to Mike. And again, this is the, lo- the uh, link between the bibliographic records, the union catalog records, and the archive directory. So it's not that we have a union catalog database sitting over here and an archive directory database sitting over here, they're actually integrated. This is something that was very important to the archivists because they hold of course a lot of physical materials, analog legacy materials that really can't be viewed in their present form so they didn't want to put their records out there 24/7 for all the world to see then have people calling their archive and and being disappointed that they couldn't view them. wastes the archive's time and disappoints the users. So we developed this integration of the two databases so that when you pull up a record, for example, here from the Peabody Awards Collection at the University of Georgia, you can link directly into their archive directory record and find out what some of their access policies are. This would be the archivist portal, and this just shows you that on the left side, left-hand navigation bar tends to be links to existing resources on the Internet, and then the... It's not a good, this page isn't a really good example, but usually in the uh, portal homepages you'll see uh, wh- original white papers written by experts in the field, usually AMIA members, and this is part of AMIA's mission, and this is AMIA's place in the partnership. The Library of Congress provides staffing, management, infrastructure, and the AMIA primarily develops the resources, the informational resources that you find on the site. And you'll see within the archivist portal there are three sub portals cataloging metadata, preservation, and programming for exhibition. And this is just an example of some of the links footage calculators, film stock date codes. Of course, we're in the archivist portal and this is technical information resources. The cataloging utility is a front end input form for the union catalog records. Now, the union catalog as it exists right now is primarily descriptive metadata. Uh, for those of you that distinguish between all the different types of metadata. Descriptive are those types of metadata that apply to any, ma- any um, manifestation of a work. So it would be the title, the summary, the credits, that type of thing. But what the cataloging utility will give us as well is administrative metadata, technical uh, descript- as well as descriptive, and rights metadata as well eventually. So the catalog utility gives, you can have all this functionality with a low overhead and infrastructure requirements. It is a METS implementation, which is a Library of Congress standard and international standard for metadata. And it's based on the workflow management system at Rutgers. Who is Mike? Well, the development team initially was Rutgers University Libraries, University of Washington, and Georgia Tech. Rutgers uh, developed the... Union catalog and the back end of that, the University (coughs) of Washington developed the archive directory and Georgia Tech worked on the website and the search engine. We had an evaluation team that conducted user studies. For that, we partnered with the library school at Rutgers. We had a science educators advisory board to help develop the science educators portal and then the community participants and those would be mostly AMIA members. Some of our alpha sites were CNN, the Library of Congress, National Geographic Television. You can see them all here. And these were chosen um, not just for a range of the collections that they held, but also for different types of metadata so that we could hit any different kinds of idiosyncrasies and quirks with the metadata and make sure that everything worked in the system across the broad range of metadata schemas that are out there. Additional uh, sites in the humanities were Fortunoff Video Archive at Yale uh, Pacific Film Archive at UC Berkeley and the Kralinger Collection at the Internet Archive I want to talk just a little bit about our metadata strategies we haven't talked about metadata too much today but I have to get that in there But before I do so, I just want to mention this is the most salient characteristic in the archival moving image field is the diversity, because we have diversity everywhere you look in this field, collections in terms of genres, forms, subjects, physical formats, digital file formats, institutional types, as we know, moving images are now found in any type of institution that's out there, every kind of size with all different kinds of missions, the financial resources available are vastly different from organization to organization. There's different constituencies, so different user needs, so therefore different metadata standards are employed. So what we try to avoid is imposing a single standard from above. <clears throat> Our metadata strategies, first is just to promote metadata standards, and this is a bit of a balancing on a beach ball act because we've got We want to embrace that diversity, but we also want to promote standards. We also want to extend standard metadata use to everybody so that people get into the habit of using standards. There are a lot of reasons to use standards, which I'm sure you're all quite aware of. We also want to enable exploration of new technologies and provide an extensible model. In fact, the name Mike was chosen moving image collections in part because it could be changed later on to media in collections, which was an acknowledgement that we hope to bring in sound recordings and other types of materials at some point. So how do we promote standards? First, just by illustrating by example the value of standards, and you can see this when the organizations contribute records to the Mike Union catalog, particularly small organizations with idiosyncratic local systems, that they've been homegrown systems, that they've been developed in-house, often without a lot of expertise. And when they see their records in the context of this larger catalog, it's very clear you can see the light bulb go on in people's heads as to how their practices might differ, might change, and they do actually go in in some cases and change their records, at least prospectively, if not retrospectively. And also we educate archivists in the use of standards. That's the um, information resources. I'm just going to cruise through some of these a little faster. Embracing the diversity not only encourages participation, but of course it also opens new avenues for record distribution. I don't want to bore you too much with this slide, but we do have a core registry which allows us to map records from all these different metadata schemas and export them in different metadata schemas, which, and each one of those has a different purpose and allows you to distribute the records in a, in a different way for a really broad distribution. And then extending standard metadata use to all. <coughs> That's primarily through the cataloging utility then, which will allow people with very low infrastructure and ex- and not so much expertise to go ahead and make standard records. Enabling, no, I'll just go through that. This is talking about METS as the LC encoding standard. We also um, map to MPEG-7, which is unusual. This is developed, this is one of the few sp- schemas out there was developed specifically for moving images it supports multiple manifestations which a lot of other things don't so if you have files in different formats and different physical formats it does support that description of all those things and linking between all those different manifestations it accommodates all the whole range of metadata and also what has been mentioned several times here today it supports automatic generation of segments as well as non-textual low-level indexing, so facial recognition, that kind of thing. We've got so much volume of material coming out, this is gonna become more and more important, as we know. This is just a screen snapshot of an old, actually an older version of the catalog utility that shows how you would go about inputting records, so you can look at the uh, different types, of, you put in the, in the descriptive metadata, then the um, rights metadata, the technical metadata, you can create templates so that you can enter many objects that have common metadata and just change a few elements. And the mapping wizard, you just submit an application. You send sample records and a list of data elements. And basically the system populates a template which allows you to go through field by field and, just, and look at how we define each field. For example, title, we'll say this is how we define title. Here's a list of your data elements which you gave us choose from the pull-down menu which of your data elements is the same as what we call title, and then they just go through element by element. And really, for most databases, that can be done in about 20 minutes, so it's very fast and the records can be distributed very broadly. This helps small organizations make their holdings accessible on the web at low cost in accordance with standards and with existing personnel and infrastructure. And larger institutions, like the Library of Congress, who have so many legacy schemas, we can actually bring them into conformance by exporting, bring them into the Mike Union catalog, mapping them through through our schema, and then exporting them in a single schema. Some of our partnerships, of course, the Library of Congress and AMIA, which is a unique partnership which really um, utilizes or exploits the strengths of both organizations, so we come up with the whole that's greater than the sum of the parts the three university developers. We've also used the Mike uh, architecture in other projects at Rutgers and in New Jersey. The New Jersey Digital Highway uses a lot of the um, development work that was done for Mike.
3: Right. Yeah. There go. Hi, I'm Andrea Callis at the British Film Institute. For those of you who are wirelessly multitasking, that's www.bfi.org.uk. <laughs> um, uh, for those of you who don't know the British Film Institute, uh, you know I like to say we've been providing access to heritage moving images since 1938. That's before I worked there. I was still working with, at UCLA with Jane. Um, and we do an enormous range of activities at the BFI, if you're not familiar with it. We have theaters on the South Bank. We have a DVD label. We have a publishing arm that does books and a, a magazine called Sight and Sound you may be familiar with. We have the archive, which um, our marketing department is currently arguing is the largest in the world, and I don't really try to dissuade them from that view. Um and we have incredible film festivals, the London Film Festival, which you've probably heard of. And we released the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, which started you know, in the mid-'80s, sort of way ahead of a lot of people. So it's a fantastic organization with lots of different things going on all the time. In the sort of educational online space, um, a really incredible resource is Screen Online, which is screenonline.org.uk. Uh, And it's really become a definitive resource for people looking for information about British film and television. Um, We've just begun a fantastic project, which has been funded by JISC, which uh, Murray referred to earlier, which is the higher education funding body to allow resources to be available online. Um, And a project that we're starting is called Voices, Moving Images in the Public Sphere – And the project really is about having a curatorial viewpoint towards these moving image resources to give them a way of actually having context and narrative, some of the words I've heard today, to really display them. So there'd be themes having to do with um, political, social, economic history in the 20th century in Britain. And the idea is that moving images have played a key role in those kinds of histories and that different moving images often give a different viewpoint. And our plan is to actually juxtapose those different moving images online and give people a chance to actually look at the different ways a particular event or idea was expressed through moving images. Um, We're really excited about this project, and it's really a tribute to JISC as well because it's 600 hours, so it's not a large quantity of material. We are emphasizing quality in a lot of ways, Quality through the interpretation through our curatorial staff that will be working on a lot of the work, as well as quality of the actual archival image. Um, they're very supportive of efforts that take into account preservation as well as access. So we're really thrilled with that, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to talk about um, just go over here. A little bit about co production that we've done with the BBC. Um, and we did, uh, uh, we've actually come together with something that I think is really exciting. And I think to sort of start it off, I'll just show a little clip. So now we can turn down those.
1: This is Bradford on Thursday, the 10th of April, 1902. Filmed from the front of a tram. This film was made by the early filmmakers Sagar Mitchell and James Kenyon. It's just one of hundreds of their films recently discovered in a cellar in Blackburn, Lancashire. The films were nearly lost forever. They take us to the world of the real Edwardians in a way our generation has never seen before. We will find out who these people were and what their lives were like.
3: Two called The Lost World of Michelin Kenyon. And 8 million people watched it, which is a lot of people in the UK. Uh, and it really, this three-part series moved the concept of a program into a format. Um I'll do my best. Um,
0: <gasps>
3: okay. <laughs> yeah, there were between 1900 and 1911, the films were, were shot between that, that time period. Stunning, amazing. As a result of the popularity of the Mitchell and Kenyon program, the BBC now regularly co-produces with the British Film Institute. Uh, we've done another program called *The Open Road*, which I'll talk about a little later as well. And we're re- working right now on um, a production co-production about the Dalai Lama, based very much on footage that we have in the collection. And the idea of the co-production really allows us to um, work together to use the best efforts of both the archive as well as the BBC together. So just a little bit about Mitchell and Kenyon and that footage that you saw, uh, because it is really compelling. Uh, Mitchell and Kenyon were the last names of two portrait photographers that uh, were based in Blackburn in the north of England. And they saw an opportunity uh, before moving images really had a wide distribution from any kind of studio setting or company. They were novelties, and they were novelties for people to go and see at carnivals and in city halls. And so they took their cameras out where there would be lots of people, which meant coming out of factory gates or along city streets, and just filmed them with big signs saying, come and see yourself later at the carnival or the or the, the townhouse. And what they did, actually, which was fantastic, was actually record all these amazing faces from that time period. So that's why there's extraordinary material. And this is... just don't like Edwardian films around here something wrong. <laughs> um, the archive worked um, closely the BFI worked closely with the University of Sheffield in actually interpreting and cataloging these films as well and that's an important connection for education as well is that we did work with them to actually build this um, information about the films because it wasn't immediately available from just a roll of film in a can So this is one of the kinds of materials that our colleagues at University of Sheffield found to actually show where these materials were shown to give them some provenance and some context. Um, So this business opportunity for this novelty, as I said, turned into this amazing social record. And they were really ordinary people in everyday situations. And this is um, this slide here. It's just from Morcombe, a seaside resort in in England. Um, And it was all the north of England um, and Scotland and some of Ireland that some of these materials were shot. Um, there were over 800 nonfiction fiction titles between 1900 and 1913, and original negatives for those archivists recovered and otherwise in the audience from this, t- from this time period are incredibly rare. Prints are what survive most of the time. So this gave us this amazingly beautiful kind of condition and quality of the image from this period as well.
1: In the early 1900s, moving film was a brand new invention and there was no such things as cinemas. It wasn't their aim to make an historic record of Edwardian life. They made them to entertain and make a profit, just like the film business now. would film anything they thought people would pay to see but by filming at factory gates as in this film they would be guaranteed big audiences the people they filmed would be curious enough to pay to see themselves on screen they were shown in tents at fairgrounds and in musicals all over the northwest and these local films were the most popular item on the bill But these amazing films only came to light in 1994 by accident. Builders are refitting a shop when they discovered three metal churns in a cold basement full of old film. They were nearly thrown away but fortunately they handed them over to local film historian Peter Worden instead. He realised immediately that this was a forgotten treasure of Mitchell and Kenyon films. He stored them carefully before donating the fine to the nation. The British Film Institute took charge of this Doric collection and painstakingly restored it. It took three years, but now the results are amazing. A hundred-year-old films with hardly a scratch. Many as clear as the day they were shot
3: clip just to give more of the footage, but also just to show you how the BBC program absolutely relied on a lot of the research that the BFI and University of Sheffield had done to actually create the information about the program. Um, And we did, you know, a very wide release of the programs. There was theatrical lease across the country, academic conferences. You know, Mitchell and Kenyon was both canon changing in the sort of film studies, but it was also a household world around the country.
1: Claude's adventurous journey took him past 150 places, from mountaintops to bustling cities. Along the way, he filmed these faces of grown ups and children belonging to a bygone era. I know I'm running out of time. Th- that was
3: from. Open Road, which was um, a second project that we did with um, BBC co-production called in their Lost World series. And here's just an example of some of the research that we did about the open road, about how uh, the information about cars and travel and amateur footage was all happening about 1926 when these films were being made Um, and touring the British countryside was being sold in a lot of ways. Um, and Claude Friesgreen, son of William Friesgreen, the British pioneer, was really behind this whole process to do um, this kind of color process. And um, it was based on a kinema color process, and it was so popular that it sort of filled theaters as large as some IMAX theaters are now. This one was called the Scala in Charlotte Street in London. And um, this is a picture of Claude with his camera on a boat that was specially made for him.
1: The films were shot in black and white negative. Colour was then reintroduced by making a positive print from the negative. And on this positive, alternate frames were tinted mechanically. And one has a rather lurid-looking object here. One has a bluey-green frame, and then next to it, a strong red, and then a bluey-green again. Now, this is the magical part. When this coloured positive, was shown at a fast speed, indeed a speed faster than most projectors were running at the time. The um, images combined to the eye and the brain, through the mechanics of the brain really, to create the illusion of a natural full coloured world. Amazing really. And Claude said that um, this film would work in any cinema, provided that cinema had a projector that could run at a faster than usual speed. And of course that for Claude was a very powerful pitch, sales pitch for his colour process. However, it was a tricky process and for audiences at the time we think the end result might have looked rather like this. For us nowadays it's not that easy to watch. But with modern day printing technology the British Film Institute who carefully preserved and stored
3: That we did. So this is the. And um, so again, I think, you know, the research that the producer Emma Hindley of these programs, who was fantastic, did, she absolutely paid attention to the kind of accuracy and historical research we'd done, both with the technology and the surrounding contextual history. And um, it gave us gives us a chance to to showcase this work that we do, spend a lot of time on restoring. Because Claude um, had sort of a red and green um, palette, he liked redheads. (laughs) Or gingers, as we call them. So that's, I mean, that's it, really. Just... um, uh, Here's some more information about the Open Road and I have to just end quickly with a shot from our Mediatech on the South Bank. If you're in London, you must come by. We have about 400 hours of archive footage available there, which is another way we're giving access to the world. Thanks very much.